Here with me today is Charles Pullington, author of Digital Video and HD, second edition, Algorithms and Interfaces. And if you've not had an opportunity to hear Charles speak, then you're in for a treat. To give you a sense of how much of an impact Charles has made in the display technology industry, here's a quote from Mark Shubin, SMPTE fellow, with regards to Mr. Poynton's book. He just says it all. This is the Gamma Sutra, a guide to the pleasures of understanding electronic pictures. It's like having the world's best teacher give you a private seminar on whatever you need to know. I don't know what more I could add than that. So, Charles, it's a huge honor to have this opportunity to tackle some big topics here that we have in mind. And um, there's a number of things people are concerned about and excited about with, as 2014 approaches with regards to the evolution of display technology and display calibration technology. Both are changing. You know, which concepts stay the same and which ones change as we move into a new world of display technology to produce and master UHD, 4K, and maybe even 8K-based media. So, Charles, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Tom. Thanks for inviting me to participate. Well, great. I'm just excited to have you here. You know, you've been instrumental in defining the standards for display technology and since the 80s, actually, and... Uh, or maybe even sooner than that, so I'm not going to even attempt to summarize. <laughs> I say that because we have a mutual friend from the 80s but in the display area. But tell us a little bit about the key um, things that you've done in the industry. Uh, I would prefer that you summarize it for me. Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, being Canadian, I'm not one to be blown. <laughs> I know. But if push me into it, I'll do it. I know, okay. Well, I cut my teeth designing and building and soldering together hardware for studio video in the early, early, early days of oh. digital video. So that was my thing. So You're a I, hardware guy. Uh, well, I, I did in those days both hardware and software. Mm -hmm. So, you know, because I'm an old timer back in those days, you could effectively do both. And right. there's only, a, you know, a small number of people who are really conversant on both sides of that. True. So I feel myself privileged and lucky to have sort of grown up in that era. But I did also in that era plug into the SMPTE standards uh, community. And so I did have a um, hand in several standards for digital video, including even REC 601, the very first digital video standard for SD. SD, yeah. And uh, then HD, the um, SMPTE 274M standard for 1080 came from my fingertips, actually. I was the document editor for that standard. So that those are the early days. And then since those days, I've discovered just personally in my own work that um, although I continue to do work in straight up HD and digital video and mm -hmm. even digital cinema, the really challenging part for me is, is the color science. Oh, yeah. And so the last, uh, I don't know, eight or 10 or 12 years, I've been spending a lot of time doing straight up color science. So that then touches the calibration and display part of your question. Mm -hmm. And uh, but, you know, I'm also very much involved in the image science issues behind uh, emerging technologies. So, so uh, 4K, UHD, uh, 8K, those things, I'm pretty much in touch with the development of those uh, you still you still involved in SMPTE? 
less so less you know so. I'm it's a lot of travel for that i know well they do still travel which yeah. you know some people would argue they don't really need to do anymore uh you know if i can be really blunt and un-canadian <laughs> uh there is an element of kind of old boyism. yeah that's what i've heard uh, yeah. yeah and that part is bad and yeah. opening it up to the young kids and making it uh possible to telecommute to the meetings would be a good move to shake things up a little bit. I've noticed that there are serious problems in that domain with standards being written really just on the verges of being outside the expertise of the people who are writing them. And if you don't get people to go to the meetings who are really these super experts, yeah. then you end up with bad standards. But So I am still involved to some extent, but not as much as I used to be. <laughs> okay, well, moving on. So the title of, this, of our conversation is Display Technology and Display Calibration. What stays the same and what will change as we move into a new world of mastering this uh, new media and these higher resolutions? Um, would it be fair to say that many of the topics, uh, many of the basic concepts in display technology remain the same, regardless of what standard you're mastering to? For, for example, I know you've written a series of 18 articles on color science topics uh, for SpectraCal uh, on, as a, in, for the display calibration specialist, and I'll put that link uh, in the blog for this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, I must say I'm I'm quite proud of those. There, there was a, they were one a month for a year and a half, um, and each one of them is exactly two pages, and they they're I think a very good encapsulation of issues that are still relevant today in in displays and display calibration. I, I agree. I I went through them all here recently, or most of them anyway, just in preparation for our talk. They're called the Charles Poynton's vectors. Yeah, now there's a little background story behind that. So they're they're actually strictly speaking, they're called Poynton's vector. vectors. Oh, okay. And, uh, uh, well, no, not even uh, not even plural. Okay. <laughs> I mean, there's Poynton more than vectors. one of them. There's 18 of them, yes. but they're all in the Poynton's vector uh, series. And the the inside joke is this: that my last name is Poynton, uh -huh. as you know. Uh, but there's another completely unrelated guy from. I want to say even a little more than a hundred years ago, uh, his name is Poynting, so P-O-Y-N-T, like my name, yeah. uh -huh. but then ending I-N-G, uh -huh. and he's a guy who worked on the deep theory of electromagnetic radiation <laughs> in the old, 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 old days, like just after... Uh, James Clerk Maxwell. Maxwell, who really was the first guy to identify the physics behind the propagation of electromagnetic waves. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself <laughs> in the story. So, Poynting did some math hinged on what Maxwell did. And Poynting identified that the cross product of the E vector and the H vector was the direction of propagation, really, really super important thing. And so that vector became known as the pointing vector. <laughs> <laughs> so when it came to name uh, this column, I couldn't resist. Couldn't resist, that, you know, for those so in the know. That's where it comes, you know, that's where we get Poynton's vector. All right, so with regards to the topics that are potentially the same as we move from current media to you know, higher resolution media, media in a color science perspective. 
Um, let's see. The things that could potentially stay the same, um, you know, we, you know, we, we still have to set black levels, brightness, white levels, gamma settings given for a specific environment, decoding and dematricing, I suppose, too. I mean, are some what, what, what stays the same as we move from HD to 4K? It's potentially a deep question, but let me touch on just the major yeah, items. Sure. So, um, white point, yeah, everybody agrees, is just D65. Yeah. So let's lock that down. Sure. Um, it, we really should specify the luminance of white. Now, I'm using luminance in a very specific term. It's the measurement of the physical power associated with the light that you produce that you call white. Mm -hmm. And it's measured in candelas per meter squared, otherwise known as nits. Right. Just nits is just the colloquial slang term for candelas per meter squared. And it's a huge failure at the moment in all video standards, including even Studio HD, that that number is not specified in any standard. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. And it, I personally think, and you know, a dozen of my colleagues think, that that number should just be standardized at 100 nits. Hmm. And 100 nits is, I mean, that's the level that we, you would be using when you're grading video. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure exactly what you do in your spot. Probably 100 candles per year squared. Yeah, I have to go back and check, but I think that's really close. Yeah. And, but the thing, though, is in terms of standards, that's not standardized. And, you know, pretty clearly it should be because our visual perception of colors depends upon the amount of light being produced for those colors. I mean, we sort of scale up and down the whole scale. I mean, we can experience a colorful picture from a movie screen, even though the maximum luminance is 48 nits. And in a movie screen, the typical luminance of a white shirt white or a white piece of paper white would only be 24. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we still get that colorful experience, but the, the perceptual experience is modulated by the overall amount of light. And that needs to be standardized. It's absolutely clear. So call that an open question at the moment. Okay. And, and that comment that I just made kind of, hinges back toward the comment about setting SMPTE standards because mm -hmm. that should be a SMPTE standard. But honestly, there's an extremely small number of people participating in the SMPTE standards who've got the experience in color science and even color appearance modeling mm -hmm. that would inform them about how to, how to choose that number. So, uh, you know, get the youngsters in for help is what I say. What about um, this sort of a related question is, I, I, you know, in calibrating the uh, Sony OLEDs, mm. they, don't they actually use a different white point? Well, that's a very tricky piece of business. Yeah. So to, to, yeah. to encapsulate in two sentences, okay. basically yeah. the display technology that we're used to for the last 25 years CRTs mm -hmm. or longer than 25 even but let's let's just say 25 has got reasonably wideband energy across the visual spectrum yeah it turns out that red is not wideband and if you've looked at the uh, spectral output of a red phosphor on a Sony CRT you see that it's two very narrow peaks uh, but, but so there's two peaks for the red and then a hump for the green and a hump for the blue yeah in the case of the OLED, there's three rather narrow 
uh-huh. peaks of energy, one for red, one for green, one for blue. And the fact that they're fairly narrow in spectral terms, uh-huh. well, it has two implications. One implication is you can make much more colorful colors. Right. So you can call that wide gamut, if you like. Right. And the emerging UHD TV, or what I would prefer to call UHD standard, it does also have quite wide gamut. So that's one beneficial effect of the characteristics of those OLED light sources in the Sony OLED display, or anyone else's OLED display, but Sony's the best example today because they're making a studio display. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, both a studio display and a professional, so-called professional display, which really means, uh, you know, one notch below studio, but still extremely good. Right. So the the, uh, fact number one, it's potentially wide gamut. And that's a big deal. But effect number two of the OLED narrow spectral emission is that it potentially causes a problem that different observers see slightly different colors. I see. And and in order to, and, and including they might see different colors for white when you light up the red, the green, and the blue. Interesting. Yeah, you, you, you can potentially get a little shift in the colors that people see for white. And so Sony has floated out what I would call a, well, uh, I guess I can be a little bit blunt and call it uh, a short-term fix uh, for that problem, which is just by altering the white point slightly, Yeah, they are mitigating that problem of observers seeing different, slightly different colors. Now, let me give you the color science name for that. It's called metamerism. Metamerism? So it's, it's M-E-T-A-M-E-R-I-S-M, which you might think would be metamerism. Right. Uh, but, you know, I can tip you off that it's the secret handshake among color scientists <laughs> to pronounce that metamerism. Okay, so, you know, I'm if you the- ever... I'm in the I'm in the in in group now. <laughs> you are now in the know. So that now when you hear someone pronounce that metamerism, Rism. which would probably be your first guess. Yes, uh, then you, you can say to them, uh actually, you know, we in the know uh, uh, know that that's pronounced metamerism. Metamerism. And so that that's what they're trying to address. So that is an issue in LED and by the way, also in laser. Displays. Now, I personally believe that we are not likely to see laser displays in consumer environments, but we will see laser displays in cinema. There's no doubt about it. And that issue of what, uh, and I'll put a qualifier in front of that, observer metamerism, mm-hmm. uh, it's likely to arise. And, you know, I mentioned observer metamerism because there's another flavor of metamerism called camera metamerism, which is where your camera doesn't see colors the same way that we see. Uh, but that's not an issue on the distribution of display end. So. Okay. Well, yeah, it's actually something that uh, Lord Jensen had mentioned from um, uh, a number of times in our conversation, but now I have the right way to say that. Well, before we move into display calibration related questions, I have a couple of those. What other concepts uh you know in color science and uh that are related to what we're talking about here stay the same as we move from hd sdhd up to you know 4k 8k okay so so this is a super good 
an interesting question. And so the key concept that pulls all of the standards together, I mean, even though there's different standards, the key conceptual element mm -hmm. for digital color imaging is additive RGB mixture. So all of the current standards for electronic images, uh, both the transmission and the display are based on that right. premise. So the idea is that when you add a certain amount of red, a certain amount of green, a certain amount of blue to make all the colors that you can make. Now, you can't ever make all of the colors. You can make most of them and you can certainly make all of the important ones. And that concept of additive mixture is then built into the standards for exchange and mastering and display. However, certain display physics adhere to that principle directly, like plasma and DLP and OLED. And certain other display technologies like LCD do not do that in the physics. And so if you're faced with trying to get a decent rendition out of an LCD display, you need to find some way to make it behave like additive RGB mixture, even though the physics of the display technology doesn't conform to that quite. I mean, our LCD displays, they're sort of reasonably plus or minus fairly close, mm -hmm. but they're not close enough for studio use. And so that issue gets us into what do you do to overcome it? Right. Well, you calibrate. Right. And in the case of a display that's got intrinsic non-additive mixture, and obviously LCDs, there's small numbers of, well, I'm thinking small numbers of billions. It may only be 700 million, but there's a lot of them. And uh, so to make those usable at the high end, you need to compensate. And so that gets us into the high-tech arena of display calibration and building 3D interpolated lookup tables to fix it. It appears as though, at least in this first wave or so of 4K type dis displays that Samsung and LG and, you know, all the guys are sort of putting out this year, which I think is largely just commercial or retail testing. You know, yeah. Is yeah. they're just using fundamentally the same LCD technologies they had, you know, with HD. Yes. I have the impression. I have the same impression. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, but but, but you're but it's going to be it's going to require potentially more calibration as we, as we go higher in resolution. Well, uh, so in the short term, the need for that calibration will be in mastering displays, and then the extent to which the consumer arena, even the high end arena, achieves accurate pictures, well, that's up for grabs mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because there's no federal consumer protection regulation that imposes a requirement on them to, to deliver accurate pictures in the consumer's premises. And so typically what we find today, and as far as I can tell, this is the case for the emerging 4K consumer displays, they are not bothering to correct or compensate this issue that I'm referring to of non-additive mixture. Uh, now, the, the non-additive mixture issue comes about because of the physics of the LCDs themselves. Like, it is the, the pixel electronics and optics 
that causes this issue. But it isn't a huge issue. Let, let's say wild, wild guess. Yeah. And I'm, I'm working on uh, getting some numbers to describe the extent of that phenomenon. But let, let's say that that intrinsic characteristic of the LCD cells themselves is responsible for errors of magnitude, let's say, 5%. Okay. All right. So then in in the mastering scenario, like when you are doing your job as color grading um, film, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah or film, movie, HD, whatever, right, right. you would really like to get within about 1%. Yeah, ideally. Yeah. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and so that makes it important for you to work out how to compensate that, you know, non-ideal behavior of the LCD, where in the consumer domain, you don't really have to do that. Right. Now, it may be that, and honestly, I hope it does transpire that, you know, over the next five, four, five, six, seven years, some pressure is exerted in the consumer domain. I mean, ideally by the consumers, but maybe not, to make them more accurate. And as the demands for them uh, in consumer space, you know, if, if, if they see that there's market pressure to become more accurate, then they may have to introduce technology like this in consumer space. So then the, the key point for us in the short term is what do we do in the grading suites and in the mastering facilities and in the Blu-ray? Uh, um, well, we're not really... Yeah. Making any Blu-rays, are we? Right. I yeah. mean, it's it's uh, we're we're very rapidly going toward online IP class yeah. distribution. So, but we're still doing mastering in much the same way. So, when you master, um, you know, you you will want to be doing that on displays which are referenced to the additive RGB mixture that's called for by the standards. And so that brings us into you know who who builds the lookup tables to do that right. compensation. Okay, so let's talk about display calibration. I mean, the question I had was, is it more or less important as we move to higher display resolutions, greater bit depths, wider gamuts? I mean, sort of, an, we're sort of work, walking our way into this, I guess, already here, aren't we? Well, so I, I think it th- this compensation of non-ideal behavior of LCDs is yeah. important today, mastering HD. Yeah. And then it simply remains important uh-huh. in all of the LCD displays moving forward, including 4K mm-hmm. or even potentially greater. So then the other thing to keep in mind, just in a very broad sense, is those other technologies for which that compensation is not required. So, for example, an AM OLED is intrinsically, according to its physics and its electronics, extremely close to additive mixture already. You said AM OLED? Yeah, or Uh otherwise known as OLED. So it's spelled out in full, the acronym is Active Matrix Organic Light Emitting Display. Okay. So I guess in in the studio community, we're used to calling it OLED, Mm -hmm. but you can also make light bulbs out of OLED. I didn't know that. Oh. Yeah, yeah, you can. So ordinarily, we call the displays AM. So clarifying that it's a matrix of OLED displays. Mm-hmm. And the matrix is active in the sense that there's one or two little transistors at every pixel site. Well, every sub-pixel site. 
So typically the order of two transistors every subpixel or six transistors every pixel. So that's the active part of AM OLED. Okay, got it. Got yeah, and it. different people pronounce it different ways. So mm. it, in, in consumer space, you might hear the word OLED. Yeah, right. So they're just splitting AMO hyphen LED, AMOLED, and pronouncing both components as if they're syllables. Well, going on with, uh, you know, greater bid depths and wider gamuts, I know SpectraCal in my travels has released a significant update to Kalman. I think I call it Kalman 5.2. What do you think of their algorithms and how well suited are they for, for mastering HD, of course, and UHD and 4K content, especially now that more and more people are involved in color grading and there's an ever-increasing push to improve production quality of all of our content. So, yeah, Joel Barsanti at SpectraCal has been doing a lot of work on the math of constructing 3D interpolated lookup tables. Mm. And then there's another set of math. I mean, I, I'm going to use the phrase at the back end, which is used for executing those lookup tables, for doing the lookup and doing the interpolation. So it, it cleaves into two parts. There's how do you build the table, and then what do you load the table into, and how does that get executed uh, yeah. on a pixel-by-pixel pixel basis yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, exactly. in your machinery? Mm -hmm. So you know, typically you'll build a lookup table, whatever, once every three months maybe. Right. Much, how, how frequently you want to do that. But let's say once every three months. And then you will load that into your machinery. Mm-hmm. And you may load the table into a display itself. You may load it into a little external box. External box, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you may load it even into an app, which right. is running. Uh, you know, so there's various ways of executing those color transforms on the way out. But what Joel is concerned with is how he builds the table. So then there's a set of math, which honestly is fairly straightforward about how you execute the, the lookups. Mm -hmm. But Joel has been digging deeply into how to make the tables in the first place. And I think he's done an excellent job. Now, you know, I don't really have an axe to grind, as expression goes. But I have been working with these guys a little bit. And, uh, you know, we've been trading some notes and uh, having a little bit of collaboration. So, uh, you know, I'm not necessarily uh, completely 100% uh, neutral on this but I, I i you know i can say they've done what i consider to be a very good job yep moving in the right direction well changing gears just a little bit i mean we talked a lot about mastering suites and things of this nature but what's been going on at the same time is a huge amount of creativity that's occurring on the web and uh there uh, and so you know i i know personally both my own job as a calibration person as well as well as a colorist that I now go into more places around Austin, Texas, and I see half a dozen uh, cubes and people, guys, guys and girls working in them, and they're just working on iMacs and MacBook Pros and, and things that they don't have five and ten and fifteen thousand dollar reference monitors, and um, and sort of like for better or for worse, that's where a lot of content is being created, and probably the 4K content will be created, and um, so. I'm just curious, uh, with regards to a debate that comes up periodically, do you think ICC profiles are accurate enough to master Rec. 709 video content? Because, I'm, I mean, I know back to 
SpectraCal, they've released a product that called Calman RGB that does this, and, and I've certainly got good results from it. But what's your opinion about ICC? Uh, well, really, it's uh, not to make it too complex, but it might be a two- or three-prong question. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, one question is, you know, what's the usability of ICC? Yeah. Uh, infrastructure to do color management or calibration for Red professional-ish no, applications, yeah, right? okay, fair enough. Uh, and then it's another issue, you know, using IMAX to uh, master content. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, l- let me and let me address that question first. So, you know, the surprise, I guess, today is that many of these new display technologies, and I'm thinking of iMac class or, you know, come on the LCD computer displays, they are actually remarkably stable. So much of the old school approach to calibration in HD or even SD, you know, video creation, hinged on the CRTs drifting around. And so today, the displays that we're using to master don't really drift around. Now, I'm a huge fan of doing, you know, an initial calibration uh, because sure. coming out of the factory or coming out of the yeah. pipe, you don't do you necessarily know? know. Yeah, you don't right. necessarily know exactly where they are. And they may even change uh, from batch to batch during manufacture, even under the same part number. Sure. So, you know, I'm thinking particularly of iPhone 5. Now, you're not going to master an iPhone 5, but lo- lots of people are going to be experiencing content yes, on iPhone absolutely. 5. And from what I understand, and, and, you know, I don't have any inside information and I'm not the authoritative guy to ask on this, you know, to ask this question. But from what I understand, iPhone 5, they actually have two display suppliers. Hmm. Yeah. And so if that's the case, you can expect those two suppliers to be delivering displays which measure somewhat differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so given iPhone 5, even though it's got one part number, you can't guarantee exactly what the color is going to be. So if you take that scenario and sort of move that into the iMac scenario for people mastering content on iMac, you know, you can't guarantee what colors you might be looking at on your particular iMac. So my idea is calibrate it once and then it's stable enough that that calibration will probably last quite a long time, like like months and months. Yeah. So then the other thing to keep in mind, and then we get to your question about uh, ICC in a moment. The other thing to keep in mind is when you're mastering content, having a reference grade display of some sort, and today this could be, you know, a $2,000 display. It's not likely to be a $400 display, mm-hmm. but at the, say, $2,000 level, uh, uh, it's going to be very stable. It's going to pretty much do additive RGB. Mm-hmm. Uh, my idea would be just to have one of those displays in your facility. I mean, you're mentioning walking in and seeing, you know, three or four or five bays of people working away, right. mastering content. My notion would be to preserve the value of that content. I mean, if it is content which is likely to have value over the next five years mm-hmm. or even 10, then my idea would be 
make sure you go and review that on a decent display before you lock it down to preserve its value. So, you know, it's a business investment issue more than Agreed. a technical issue. So then finally, we come to the question, can you master using ICC profiles to do your calibration? And the quick answer there is when ICC was invented, and that's about 20 years ago now, it was invented in 8-bit space. You know, the image data was 8 bits and the processing machinery was 8-bit, 8-bit, 8-bit RGB. Mm -hmm. That 8-bit ICC solution was certainly not sufficient to studio-grade mastering. And, you know, we see artifacts differently when they move. Yeah. Now, the whole ICC infrastructure was designed to address graphic arts where the picture didn't move. Right. But as soon as a picture starts to move, roughly speaking, what happens is the artifacts start to move. Uh. And we see those really easily. And that basically demands better than 8-bit performance for moving pictures. However, the ICC infrastructure has been updated yeah. last 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so you've got more than 8 bits. In some cases, you've got 16-bit processing paths. And in some cases, you've got 32-bit float processing paths. So about, I want to say about four years ago, it was very much under the radar while it was happening. But there is now an ICC standard that allows you to build a 32-bit floating point ICC transform. Nice. Very yeah, nice. so then that allows you to use ICC in a studio-ish environment to do things like, well, either the grading, I mean, you can build ICC profiles that do grades, and you can also build ICC profiles that do calibration. So that approach is very much at the heart of today's After Effects. Mm -hmm. uh, After Effects is built on an ICC color oh yeah that's fascinating yeah it's very interesting and but however it only works with floating point profiles yeah now i have to admit naivety or ignorance here and saying i don't know the current state of the art i mean i happen to know just sort of by fluke about about after effects doing that right i don't know what the situation would be if you were a final cut pro 10 shop yeah, uh, I'll make a wild guess that the high-end MacOS infrastructure allows floating point ICC profiles, mm -hmm. but I can't guarantee that. I'm really not sure. And so the challenge to someone working in, you know, you or someone working in your space is to figure out can I get a floating point ICC profile workflow. And if you can, then I would be confident that you could do your grading and even your calibration using that technique. Now, so then, um, and as I say, using After Effects, you get that. And using other schemes and other products, I, I can't say for sure. And honestly, it's really hard to find out. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, you know, the guys that wrote the code know, and they may or may not tell you on that. Yeah, they well, they know, yeah. but it's the classic situation with modern big complex software systems and Harvard 
train, you know, business yeah. development managers that, you know, you don't get to talk to the programmers right. typically. Right. Um, and, you know, the, if you'll forgive my saying, so the Harvard MBAs don't really know what an ICC floating point workflow is. Right. So it's that classic situation that we've got these amazingly powerful tools, but it's not so easy to find out what's inside them anymore. Well, um, I'll, I'll just complete with two two comment quick commentaries on that. I've been um, testing out the common RGB on a lot of different Macs and the Retina displays in particular and iMacs. And uh, the two things that I've I've realized was that uh, in general, out of the box, um, there is a slight blue uh, bias or blue tendency in the way they mm. come right out the factory. Okay. Um, some more. I'm, than, I'm sorry. You're suggesting that the retina displays are before calibration. Before calibration, they're, yeah, you got it. They're okay. really the retinas in particular are very, very, very close. Um, although there, that one, I've had one or two that were that were a little more blue than the others. And the older, more traditional Mac, you know, one year old, the iMacs, and all yeah. and everything else is not retina. In other words, for Mac, the yeah, white, yeah. white uh-huh. LCD, they tend to have a slight bluish. Um, uh, tent to them. So let me quickly interrupt just on exactly yeah. that point. So that is almost certainly simply a choice on Apple's part yeah. on the factory setting for white reference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if you simply crank that display down to D65 white, it's likely to be dramatically improved. Right. Right. Good. And I mean, point. that's, you can say cranking to D65. I mean, ideally, that's part of calibration, but you might find that you can dig into the display settings and uh, move the white point right. uh, without going all the way into calibration. Now, I think you should calibrate if you're. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've done that, and I'll take like uh, the 65 points of, uh, of, of gray or from black to white uh, instead of the standard 15 or whatever okay. out of the yeah, package. Yeah. And then I run a color checker on that thing, and it's frighteningly uh, good. It's down, yeah, yeah, down yeah. in like three percent, or well, well below three, well yeah. between one and two. Unfortunately, there are a couple of of um, hues or colors that are or will pop up to five or more. Like one or two little bars will pop up in different colors. They're usually in this sort of orangish. I don't know why that is. But for the most part, if I compare that to the Flanders next sitting right next to it, mm. I can just only – I have to focus hard to sort of see the difference between the two, and the client doesn't know. Right. So the idea right. of having at least one reference screen with all your others, but 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 moving your your your, your iMac and your, your MacBook Pros what, at to as close as technically possible to Rec. 709 – starts to eliminate a lot of confusion and misunderstanding and well why does this screen look so different from that and oh yeah you know some reference to that charles thank you so much for your time today i i understand i think you'll be talking again at hpa this year and palm springs and uh i've made a couple of uh, proposals and uh, hpa okay. has not uh, finalized the program I'll, I'll give you a teaser though okay a scoop story <laughs> as a teaser yeah there's a really excellent chance that there will be a traditional point in R, which uh, traditionally, and I mean the last 
nine or 10 or 11 years, there's been a seminar one day in front of the program. The last several years, this has taken place on the Monday of HBA week. Mm-hmm. And there's an excellent chance this year, so middle of February in uh, Palm Springs, mm-hmm. that there will be a six-hour seminar, physics, psychophysics, and vision. Fascinating. Or advanced motion imaging. Um in the development of motion imaging systems beyond 1080p HD, right. various proponents have proposed and in some cases deployed three schemes alleged to improve quality. Mm-hmm. Bit depths beyond the 10-bit color component standard for HD. Right, right. Pixel counts, 4K and 8K, mm-hmm. higher than the 1920 by 1080 of HD. And frame rates higher than 60 hertz. However... The trade-offs among these various options are not well understood. Right. So the seminar will be about what are all those trade-offs. Cool. That's going to be well received, I'm sure. Yeah, it should should go over well, I hope. So how and also I understand you occasionally do some color science webinars. I have been doing webinars. Uh, I have not done any the last uh, three or four months, but uh, there's likely to be. Uh, one or two webinars between now and the end of the year. Okay. I'm not sure exactly what topic, but up your alley, I do have a webinar ready to go on color science for color grading. So keep your eye out on uh, the announcements of that. I'm, uh, I generally float those announcements both out to my LinkedIn uh, connections and out to Twitter. And then the best way for people to get a hold of you, Charles? I'm uh, available on the web. It started about uh, five or six months ago doing infrequent blog postings. So just blog.pointon.com. And, uh, you know, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm on Twitter. And, uh, you know, available uh, by email. Well, Charles, thank you so much for your time today. This was highly enlightening. I greatly appreciate it. Oh, I I had a lot of fun, Tom. Thanks for uh, for doing this. Good. That's what I want. All right. 